You are listening to the Purpose Church High School Ministry Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've heard them all, God has something to say to you. Our vision is to see every student everywhere following Jesus, and we hope this message helps you take your next step in your faith. To learn more about our high school ministry, visit our website, purposechurch.com HSM, and check us out on Instagram at purposehsm. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Tonight is track three, or week three, track three of our series we're calling A Better Playlist, letting the gospel change what's in our hearts and headphones. And today is track three, and the title of this song, the title of this sermon is this, God Breathed. God Breathed. Now, a couple years ago, uh, when my uh, oldest daughter, Brinley, was only five years old, she is eight now, she's actually gonna be turning nine in a few weeks. Um, when she was five years old, we started going on these things that we would call bikes, Bible, and bucks. Bikes, Bibles, and bucks. And what that meant is we jumped on our bikes, we took our Bibles, and we went to Starbucks, all right? Because dad loves Starbucks. So we went, to, we went with our bikes and our Bibles to Starbucks. And we'd get to Starbucks and we'd order a drink or a snack or something and then we'd open the Bible together and I'd try to read a verse and we would kind of talk about it. And on one of these occasions, Brinley <clears throat> was reading uh, the Bible with me. I was kind of reading it and talking about it. And one of the passages talked about how God is our father. God is our father. And Brinley, if you know Brinley's personality, um, she gets very excited about things. And, and she, she kind of, she'll find out something and then she wants to run 100 miles with it. And so Brindley, she finds this out and she goes, dad, this is amazing. God's my father. I'm like, yeah, yeah, God's your heavenly father. She goes, she goes, this is incredible. And then she looked at me. She looked at me as we were kind of riding our bikes back. We were kind of talking with each other. She looked at me and she said, I know the truth now. She said, God is my real dad. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, what do I do here? Because I'm like, yeah. So I said, I said, Yes, yes, God is your heavenly father, um, but I'm your earthly father. And she goes, no, 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 no. God is my real dad. And I said, God is your heavenly father. Yes, he's your heavenly father, but, but I'm your earthly dad. And then you guys, no joke, as we're riding our bike, we pass by this group of strangers and Brinley screams out. She goes, oh, I get it. I have two dads. She just screams out. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, yes, but maybe not how everyone thinks about it. I like, didn't know what to do about it. But here's Brinley sorting out in her head and her mind and her heart what God's word means for her life. She's taking so seriously God's word that she's trying to make sense of it. I want to ask you a question tonight. What role does God's word play in your life? Really? Honestly, on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-by-year basis, what role does God's word play in your life? And how does it shape your beliefs and your behaviors? Tonight's message, I hope that it's encouraging. I hope that it's helpful. I think it might be even a little bit convicting for some of us. 
Because tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at two incredibly important verses in the Bible. And what you believe about these verses will shape and guide the majority of your life. That this is kind of one of those hills that we as Christians die on. And make no mistake about it, there's a lot of hills that Christians die on that they probably shouldn't die on. This is one of those hills as followers of Jesus that we die on, that we're really, really big on, that's really, really important to us. And so I'm gonna ask you to lean in. I'm gonna challenge you to take notes, to really think through some of these concepts, to, to engage with it in your life groups because what you do with these two verses will shape and dictate the majority of your Life. So if you have your Bibles with you, which we want to encourage you, bring your Bible every single Wednesday night with you. We have extras for you, but we want to encourage you to bring yours. If you don't have one, we will buy you one. We will get you one. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's towards the end of the Bible. There's a table of contents in the beginning that can tell you what page to go to. But flip open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who's a church planner who is a leader in his church, a pastor in his church, trying to lead a group of people. And that's literally where we're gonna be spending the majority of our time. We're gonna look at a few other verses, but 2 Timothy chapter three is where we're gonna be spending the majority of our time. And I really have three big ideas, three movements for us. And the first is this, the power of the Bible. First, we're gonna talk about the power, it's the fill in the blank, the power of the Bible. Second Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse 16, really just the first few words of 16 says this. All scripture. All scripture. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. This word, God-breathed, is the Greek word, which is what the New Testament was written in. It was written in an ancient language almost 2,000 years ago. The language is Koine Greek. It's like a, a, a vulgar Greek. It's a, it's a slang. It's, it's, it's a common everyday language that anyone in that time and place could have understood. The word in the Greek language for God-breathed is theonousia. Theonoustos, and it only shows up once in the entire Bible. The reason it only shows up once is because Paul made up this word. Have you ever like been writing an essay or something, and you, you make up a word, and you're like, I don't know if it's real, but it sounds good, right? Like that's, that's what Paul's doing here. Is he, he is literally taking together two Greek words, smashing them together. The first Greek word is theos, which means God. The second Greek word is pneuma, which means breath. And he's packing them together. He's smashing them together, saying, all scripture is God-breathed. This is a powerful statement about this book. In very real ways, Paul is saying this book is not someone breathed, it's God breathed. And one of the first things you have to decide is, is this book just someone breathed? Is it just another religion's breath? Is it just another way of living? Is it just one of many possibilities? Or is this God breathed? 
Paul says it's God breathe. That, that means that it is inspired by God. That means that no other words in all of human history have this same designation. This classification of God breathed is only found here in these words. Peter picks up on this idea in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21. Peter says this, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is an incredibly helpful verse. This literally sort of charts the course of how Scripture comes about. You see, the Bible is God's inspired and authoritative revelation, his message to all of humanity about who he is, who we are, and how we are to live. That if you were to sum up the whole Bible and say, okay, what is it about? It's God's authoritative, meaning he has authority, he has power because it's God-breathed. It's his message to us about who he is, who we are, and how it is that you and I are to live in the world. Now, here's what's crazy about the Bible. It wasn't just written in one setting. It wasn't like some guy was like, gosh, there's nothing new on Netflix. What should I do? Um, I could do TikTok. No, I'm just going to write something. Like, that's not how it came about. This book took 1,600 years to write. It features multiple genres, over 40 different authors. It was written on three different continents. And yet it's incredibly cohesive and synced up and unified in that it tells the message and the story of who God is. The word Bible, it literally means books. It doesn't mean one book. It means books, or it could mean a library of books. And so the Bible is really 66 books, 39 that are in the Old Testament before Jesus ever showed up, 27 that are in the New Testament about Jesus's life, and then the church, the people who continued to follow Jesus, and, and it's telling the story of God. Here's what's insane about it, is that from its original writings, scribes and priests and religious leaders made copies after copies after copies. That's how it's continued to get passed down to us. Now, one of the questions people have when they think about the Bible and, and really, could the Bible have power? Could the Bible have power? How, like, if the Bible is powerful, how would I know that what I'm reading here in English is the same things that were wit written 3,400 years ago, 2,000 years ago? Well, catch this, you guys. If you're into history, you're gonna love this. In the year 1947, archaeologists discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, up to this point, the oldest copies of the Bible that we had dated 900 AD. That's the oldest copies that we had in the year 1947. The oldest copies of the Bible that we had were from 900 AD. In 1947, that changed dramatically because what these, what these archaeologists found were these scrolls of the Bible that dated all the way back to 1100 B.C. To 1100 B.C. Um, sorry, to, sorry to, one, to 100 B.C. To 100 B.C. What that means is that overnight, we now had copies of the Bible that were a thousand years apart from each other. And the question that everybody was asking was this, are they the same? 
The copies from 900 AD, do they match the copies from 100 BC that were over a thousand years different? And here's what's crazy. They matched perfectly by 95%. The 5%, you're wondering what was it? It was grammatical things. It was a missing comma, missing period. It it was a missing letter. Nothing historically changed. Nothing theologically changed. Nothing doctrinally changed. Nothing different about it. That is insane. That within a thousand year time period, it's exactly the same. So you can be confident when you pick up your Bible and you read it in the English language, this is the same text that was written from the very beginning. So why should you trust the God of the Bible to determine how you live your life today? Well, he pre-existed you. He created you. He died for you. He rose for you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than anyone else ever could. He won't lie to you. He will never betray you. God loves you right now, right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. The God of the Bible can be trusted. Charles Spurgeon, the uh, 18th century British preacher, he said this, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it and it will defend itself. When I was preparing this sermon, I I was thinking about Adrian, one of our new leaders. Can everyone look back at Adrian and say, hi, Adrian. He loves getting embarrassed like this. It's one of his favorite things. So um, I was thinking about Adrian. And some of you will get to hear Adrian's story more, but Adrian was telling us a little bit of his story, and he was telling us about how he wasn't a Christian, that he didn't know what he believed. And then he decided to pick up the Bible. And he's a lawyer, so he's really good at reading. So he took the summer, three months, and read the entire Bible, okay? Read all 66 books in three months, And when he was sharing his testimony with Pastor Claire and I, he was saying to us, he was like, look, as I was reading it, God was answering my questions. God was revealing himself to me. I learned about who Jesus really is. And through reading the Bible over a three-month time period, I decided to surrender my life to Jesus. That's the power of the Bible. But the Bible isn't just powerful. The next big idea is this. The next thing I want to talk about is the path of the Bible. We talked about the power of the Bible. It's God breathed. What about the path of the Bible? Let's look at the next part of verse 16. It says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful. This is a big word. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is what's so cool. Not only is the Bible God breathed, but it's God-breathed in a useful, helpful kind of way. I mean, this this is awesome. God is infinite. He's all-powerful. He's all-holy. God is absolutely free. He could do anything that he wants. But get this, students. If you're wondering, man, how, how much does God love me? He loved you enough to write you the story, using all these authors, inspiring all these people to write his story to you in a way that's helpful. 
in a way that's useful, in a way that can change your life, in a way that can help you make better decisions, in a way that can heal your broken friendships, in a way that can protect you from all kinds of sins that are going to lead you down dangerous paths. He did all of that because he loves you. The Bible is, is evidence of God's grace and love and mercy that he wants you to know him. And he wants you to know the best way to live. Any problem that you have right now, any issue going on in your life, there is guidance and help in the Bible for you. Now, the Bible doesn't address every single topic and every single thing we experience, but there are the principles in it that can apply to every single issue, every single question, every single struggle, every single hurt, every single pain, every single broken relationship in our life. But what does Paul mean here when he says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training? Let's look at each one of those. First, Paul says the Bible is useful for teaching. Here's what he means. The Bible tells us the truth about God, the world, ourselves, and others. The Bible, because it's God-breathed, is a trusted source of information. It's a trusted source because it's true. Let me give you some examples of this. Psalm 139 verses 1 to 4 says this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Did you know that God knows everything about you? He knows every insecurity. He knows every fear. He knows every burden and stress that you walked into this room carrying. He knows all of it. And he loves you. And he's not going anywhere. And he would never say to you, you're too messy. You're too broken. You've got too much baggage. You have too much history. He would never say any of that. In fact, he loves knowing everything about you. But the Bible is true in that it tells us about the gospel. The Bible always points us back to the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul here says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul says the gospel is the most powerful thing on planet Earth. Did any of you see Wakanda? Anybody, anybody see uh, um, the new uh, uh, Wakanda? Yeah, okay. I loved it. I loved it. I absolutely loved Black Panther Wakanda. It was amazing. And, and as we got to learn more about vibranium, right? You guys, you guys seen this vibranium? Whenever Charlie's in the goalie, Charlie plays soccer, whenever he's in the goalie, I'm like always chanting from the side. I'm like, be a vibranium wall. Be a vibranium wall. Like nothing's going to get through him. And as we learn so much about vibranium, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the most powerful thing on planet Earth. All the nations, all the nations are trying to, to figure out how can they get their hands on vibranium. And in our day and in our culture, there are so many things that we prize as being so powerful. 
But Paul says, let me tell you something you need to be reminded of. In a world that praises vibranium, in a world that praises political power, in a world that praises people who have a lot of money or whatever you think is the most powerful thing in the world, Paul says, you need to know this, the gospel, that is the story of Jesus' death, resurrection from the dead, his salvation, his, his life for us is the most powerful thing in the world. Why? Because it brings salvation. There's no other power on planet earth that can bring salvation, that can bring healing, that can bring restoration, that can truly change our lives and give us all eternal life. It's only the gospel. To which students, as we're in this series, a better playlist, what messages are you listening to? What media are you consuming? And what is it teaching you? What is it telling you about the most powerful and important thing in the world? God's word, it teaches us what is true. But then Paul says that scripture is useful for rebuking. What does that mean? What does it mean to rebuke? It means that the Bible calls out errors and defines sin. The Bible calls out errors and defines sin. And this is an incredibly unpopular thing to talk about in our day, in our culture. That nobody in our culture wants to talk about how there is right and wrong. How there is good and evil. How there is sin. And what it does to us. Nobody wants to put labels on these things. But because God's word rebukes and reveals errors and defines sin, it's not afraid to do this. And Jesus, who was perfectly loving and who gave up his life so that us sinners could be in a relationship with him. Look at Jesus. He actually defined some sins for us. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Jesus said, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, which is any kind of sexual experience outside of that which God has ordained between a husband and a wife. That's pornography. That's lust. That's any kind of relationship, any kind of sexual relationship outside of that between a husband and a wife. Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, Jesus isn't giving an exhaustive list here. He's not defining all the sins of the world. But what he is doing is he's listing some. He's saying these will lead you away from God. They'll get in the way of you having a close relationship with Jesus. And this is the point. I can't define sin. Culture can't define sin. Only God can define sin. If I'm the one deciding what's sin and what isn't sin, we're in trouble. If culture is the one defining sin, history has shown us that when culture has been responsible for defining what is sin and what isn't sin, usually women and children are exploited in the process. The question is, what do you do when culture says, that's okay, and maybe even within you, you go, this feels okay, but God's word says, it's not okay. What do you do? 
you have to go back to the first part of the verse that says all scripture is God breathed. This means you can trust him. This means he loves you. This means even the things he's calling out, the sin in you, that's hard for you to let go of or to trust in his hands or to no longer participate in, he's doing that because he actually loves you. Because he wants freedom. He wants joy. He wants more for you. Number three, Paul says the Bible's useful for correcting. What does that mean? It means the Bible lovingly restores our understanding of God, the world, ourselves, and others. So the Bible rebukes us in that it, it calls out error. It exposes sin within us. But then it corrects us. It's like it wraps God's arms around us and says there's a way back to God. There's a better way to live. It corrects maybe our false beliefs about who God is. I've told some of you this story before, but several months ago there was a young adult sitting in my office. And she was telling me about all the pain and trauma and all the hurt she'd experienced in her life. And it was awful. Oh, it was so devastating all that she had endured. I mean, my heart was breaking. My, my, my eyes were welling up with tears as we were talking. And then she just said this little line. It like slipped out of her mouth as if she had said it a hundred times before and had not even given it much thought. She said this line. She said, and I know that God hates me. She said, I know that God hates me. And so I talked with her for a few minutes afterwards and I said, I can't imagine going through all that you've gone through. I am so sorry for all that you've gone through. But I need to tell you something. God does not hate you. I know that because of what you've been through, it feels like God hates you. Maybe, maybe culture is telling you God hates you. Maybe even inside yourself, you've concluded God hates you. But because the Bible is useful for correcting us, for restoring us, for helping us understand exactly how God feels about us, we go back to his word to determine how he feels about us. Not how we wake up feeling about ourselves when we look in the mirror. Not how that coach or that teacher or that parent or that friend or that sibling or that loved one says how they feel about us. No, no, we look to God and how God feels about us. And so we go to verses like John 3.16. And it says, for God so... Hold on, hold on. For God so... So hold on, you're running too far. Hold on, hold on. For God so... For God so... God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. Do you see how this can correct your heart and your mind? That when you start having that moment where you go, God must really hate me because of everything horrible going on in my life, you can go, uh-uh, hold on, hold on. The scripture is God breathed. It is God's inspired word, and it says that God loves me. And so even when I don't feel it, even when I doubt it, even when it doesn't make sense, I will believe that God loves me. And then lastly, Paul says, it's useful for training. The Bible offers practices and instructions for how to live as followers of Jesus today. Just look at the practical wisdom just in this, in this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says this. 
Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. I mean, that, that's exactly what we do with Mariah, right? Mariah is one of those people. Let's go back to that verse. This literally, Mariah didn't know this, but she's in the Bible. She's right here in the Bible. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who are like Mariah, who care for you like Mariah in the Lord, and who admonish you like Mariah. So we literally did that, right? We just acknowledge her. We just encourage her. Okay, keep going. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. So if any of you talk crap about Mariah, you're out, okay? So we're holding her in high regard. We're holding her in high regard. Live at peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you see how practical and helpful and, and how, how the Bible trains us to live differently? Students, if reading the Bible doesn't move you to love and serve others, you're not reading it right. If reading the Bible fills you up with a lot of knowledge, but does not change anything about the way you love or serve others, you're not reading it right. And Paul says the Bible teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. You know what the word righteousness means? It's really simple. It means this. Right relationship with God, right relationships with others. That big fancy Bible word righteousness, here's what it means. Having a right relationship with God and having right relationships with others. In other words, Paul says because all of scripture is God-breathed, because it's inspired, because it's his love message to us, it's going to teach us, it's going to rebuke us at times, it's going to correct us, and it's going to train us so that we can have a right relationship with God and we can have right relationships with others. Think about how every single problem in your life would be fixed if everyone had a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. How do we get there? We go to the God-breathed scriptures and allow them to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us. And here's where I want to close out. The purpose of of the Bible. What's the purpose of the Bible? It says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now this is important. Some translations, some translations will say about this last verse, it will say, go back to it real quick, go back to that last verse. It'll say, so that the man of God so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those translations are misleading. Because the Greek word here, the NIV chooses to put in the word servant, but the Greek word here is anthropos. Anthropos is person or human. It's where we get the word anthropology from, the study of humanity. The, the word to describe a male, like a man person, is aner in the Greek language. 
But here Paul says anthropos. He uses anthropos. Why? Because this teaching is for men and women. This teaching is for every single person. This is not limited to men. It's not limited to women. It's for all of us. I want to close with Psalm 119, verse 11. Psalm 119, verse 11 says this. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Here's my challenge for you. As a life group, over the next week, I want you to memorize this verse. This is King David talking. He's saying, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I want to know your teaching. I want you to correct me and, and, and rebuke me, correct me. I want you to train me. I, I want to know your word because it's God-breathed. And David says, I've hidden it in my heart so that I won't sin against you. St. Augustine, who was the North African theologian, you guys have heard me say this quote multiple times. I love it. He said this, for now treat the scripture of God as the face of God, melt in its presence. You know, one day if you're a follower of Jesus, you're gonna see Jesus face to face and you're gonna spend all of eternity with him face to face. But until then, we treat the scripture of God as the face of God. We melt in its presence. But maybe for some of you, you have a Bible. It's somewhere at your house. It's collected a lot of dust. And honestly, you're like, why would I even read this thing? It doesn't carry that much importance to you. But I want to end tonight reminding you that there have been a lot of people who have literally given their lives so that you and I could have this. In fact, I want to tell you this story. Let's go to the next slide. As Greek and Hebrew manuscripts found their way into the hands of church reformers, it was decided that they should be translated into a language that the common people could read. In 1522, William Tyndale determined to translate the Bible into English. When a fellow clergyman challenged Tyndale suggesting that people might be better without the law of God rather than the law of the Pope, he replied, if God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more scripture than you do. In 1526, Tyndale began smuggling from Germany printed copies of this English Bible into his homeland of England. Tyndale was eventually captured, tried by the Holy Roman Empire as a heretic, and executed by hanging and burning. And he endured that because he couldn't imagine his friends and his family not knowing God's I want to encourage you tonight to make a commitment for the first time or a new commitment or a new commitment or a recommitment that you're going to give this book a chance because it's powerful, because there's a path behind it and because there's a purpose, because it's God breathed and it's useful.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I confess that I take for granted so often that you inspired all of these authors and in miraculous ways have brought me this text that I can read in my own language because of the sacrifice of so many so that I could know you. Thank you that your word is God-breathed and I pray that every one of us in this room would decide today to start reading your Bible, to start spending more time in your word and to allow your teaching and your rebuking and your correcting and your training to take root in our lives so that we could be equipped to live the lives you've called us to live. Thank you for your God-breathed words to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.